Well, what a morning. Did you finally get to this part of the service? We've had our baptism, and my computer's broke down, and the PowerPoint's not working, but it's coming from the back. Um, yeah, I need a reading week or a week off. I have to say reading week because Desi's sitting there, but it's really going to be a relaxing week. In Northern Ireland, we have a saying that so-and-so doesn't mince their words. Well, the book of Hosea certainly doesn't mince its words, as we have heard here week after week. But then again, does the Bible ever mince its words? At the beginning of this series, Steve said that it should come with a parental advisory statement. Well, this week, I think it should come with an 18 rating. Yes, you guessed it, there will be a lot of the W word, as we'll be using Eugene Peterson to help us unpack this passage this morning. So where have we reached since September? Well, we have had Hosea and Gomer and the story of their love, the buyback of God and his people. And then last week we saw how God had a charge to bring against his people, that there was no faithfulness in the land. People wanted godliness, but not God. They wanted God when things were going wrong in the land, but on a daily basis, no was the cry. Stop getting in my way. And this week we find ourselves reflecting on a sermon given by Hosea as found in chapter 4. So this morning, if you will, is a sermon on a sermon. In this passage, God continues to bring his charge against his people, his prophets, and his priests. Part of me, if not all of me this morning, is slightly wary and apprehensive about trying to preach on this section of the text, because in it God challenges those who were the religious guys of the day, the priests, and warns about what they are doing, saying, and suggesting. Not just a warning against a comfortable pew, but also a warning against a comfortable pulpit. Then, in preparation, no matter what commentary I'd picked up on this chapter, more or less began with the words, scholars differ hugely on how this passage should be interpreted. Alarm bells started ringing. But here goes, anyways. Some personal reflection, some scholarly input, and let's see where it takes us as we try with God's help to understand this passage and see how it applies to our everyday lives. Newcastle, Easter Monday. Scrabotar, Easter Tuesday. Rain, hail, shine, and snow. I kid you not. No matter what the weather type, this day had been planned, and under no circumstance would it be called off. Family picnics. We've all been on one. The most stressful family event of the year, maybe bar Christmas. Everybody squeezed into a car for the most uncomfortable journey of your life. Suddenly, that 45 minutes down the road becomes like a trek to America. Sandwiched between your aunt and your grandma. Then the fun really begins. Enough boiled sweets to nearly start boiling your insides. Then finally, the arrival. 
Then the fun continues. The emptying of the car. Who survives that? I don't know about your family, but the Abernethys uh, know how to do picnics. If it was an Olympic sport, I reckon we'd finish at least with a bronze medal. Maybe the only competitive sport we'd win anything at. But this one, we'd definitely get a bronze medal. The boot opens, out comes the picnic box, every flavour of sandwich, every tray bake under the sun, the Royal Albert, the knives, the forks, the cheese board, the cake stand, the good rug. And on it goes. A little bit of this, a little bit of that. The meal equivalent of a pick and mix. In our passage this morning, we see how the hurt between God and his people has been taken to a whole new level. His people have been pick and mixing him. They were turning things into a picnic. They were exchanging the glory that they had for disgrace of temporal pleasure. A little bit of this and a little bit of that. Let's pick, sorry, let's park the picnic for a moment. Keep the idea in your mind's eye. We'll be returning to it. But if you will, indulge me as we return to further explore the text. What a catalogue of complaints we have just read. It's clear that God has no lack of charge to bring against his people and his priests. You all know by now of my love for cheesy pop, the nasty lyrics that are usually associated with it. You know those lines that really don't make sense but are quite good to hum along to in the car. Well, the other night in home group, some people were asking, goodness, how are you going to make a Beyonce song fit this week? Unfortunately, Beyonce, no, but maybe Rihanna. Oh, bear with me, it'll be all right. (laughs) I thought, goodness... Can I find anything in Rihanna to possibly fit? Well, after all the fuss recently uh, about her new music video filmed here in Belfast's very own uh, streets, drink, drugs, sex and rock and roll and the the odd flash of Harnold and Wolf and the Divis Flats. Yet, as I drove home, I couldn't help but think about the title of that song, We Find Love in a Hopeless Place. Now, some have said that's typical. She comes to Belfast and sings a song about finding love in a hopeless place. What is she saying about us? But think about it one more time. We find love in a hopeless place. Is that not the theme song of Hosea? A place that was dark, bleak, dirty, hopeless. Yet, by the end of the book, love wins. Not in a Rob Bell way that we were hearing about last week, or last Sunday evening, but the love of God for his people wins and keeps on winning and winning and winning. Now, the people in Hosea's day certainly were religious. There was hardly a hill in the land without an altar on it. There was hardly even a clump of uh, oak or poplar tree that hadn't been sacrificed or used as a holy place. The blood of animal sacrifice flowed every day, not just once a week. Drive around Belfast and you'll be amazed at the number of churches you come across. 
the amount of turn or burn placards on display? Are we this morning like the Israelites, living in a land that seems religious or even has religion? But we must be careful not to take an element of religiousness for faith. A real and breathing faith. This is what our passage is warning against. Some have said that Christianity is the unreligion. It turns all our religious instincts on their heads. Um, I think, there we go. The ancient Greeks told us to be moderate by knowing our inclinations. The Romans told us to be strong by ordering our lives. Buddhism tells us to be disillusioned by annihilating our consciousnesses. Hinduism tells us to be absorbed by merging our souls. Islam tells us to be submissive by subjecting our wills. Agnosticism tells us to be at peace by ignoring our doubts. Moralism tells us to be good by discharging our obligation. Only the gospel tells us to be free by acknowledging our failure. Christianity is the unreligion because it is the one faith whose finder tells us to bring not our doing, but our need. At its core this morning is this real authentic, living, breathing faith, not a religion. This chapter is a reaction against such thinking. Bear with me now if we just let our eyes glaze over um, what Peterson translates the first couple of verses of this chapter like. But don't look for someone to blame. No finger pointing. You priests are the ones in the dock. You stumble around in broad daylight. And when the prophets take over, they stumble all night. Your mother is as bad as you. My people are ruined. Because they do not know what's right or true. Because you have turned your back on knowledge. I've turned my back on you, priests. Because you refuse to recognize the revelation of God, I'm no longer recognizing your children. The more priests, the more sin. They treat it in their glory for shame. They pig out on my people's sins. They can't wait for the latest in evil. The result, you can't tell the people from the priests. Next slide. The blame for Israel's decline is quite clear in this passage. It's put in the hands of her spiritual leaders, her priests and her prophets. What is so striking is more than the poor showing of these men is the glory of the task entrusted to them. No less than to be the nation's spiritual educators. Unlike most religions where priests, um, sorry, I've lost my place. Unlike most religions where priests were close guardians of cultic mysteries, while the people's part was more or less mechanical, the faith of the Old Testament was a revelation addressed to every mind and to every conscience, making wise the simple. So a spiritually sightless priest is a moral danger to himself and a disaster 
to others. Hosea here is spelling out uh, in detail a theme which would later be picked up by Christ when he talks about the blind leading the blind. Hosea this morning speaks against a corrupt priesthood which is ripping people off. They're not inspiring people but calling them back. Sorry, they're not inspiring people, calling them back to covenant loyalty, but they are extracting sacrifices from the people in the form of food and tithes in return for declaring them forgiven. In the chapter, the Lord, through Hosea, begins by pointing his finger at the people of God, but finally his finger comes to rest on the priest, saying that you are the real culprits. He'll remove the nation and cut them off, Because the people have no knowledge of God. Because there is no knowledge, they shall come to ruin. Without understanding, they don't know God, and that's why things are the way they are. This is not knowing in some kind of academic sense, but rather in a gut feeling. To love him, to obey him, to walk with him, Day by day, loyalty. The priests were feeding on the sins of the people. The more sin, the better. As it meant there was a constant supply of food for them, exchanging their glory for disgrace. Someone has said that the results of bad teaching almost always shows up in the worship of the people. In the way people worship. If God is not presented as redeemer, no one will come to him for forgiveness. If God is not seen as the sovereign king of the universe, people will not honor and revere him as divine Lord, but will treat him as a casual buddy. If no one knows what God hates and is ignorant of what pleases him, it is not surprising if people do things that are contrary to his revealed way. I'm going to skip two slides. Um, I had two quotes here from Bonhoeffer, um, which I can't claim to be from my own reading, but from Desi, and that's not why we're skipping them. Uh, but <laughs> minding, the, minding the time there. Um, it says 10 past one up here. I hope that's not the case. Uh, verses 11 to 14. Then wine and whiskey leave my people in a stupor. They ask questions of a dead tree, expect answers from a sturdy walking stick. Drunk on sex, they can't find their way home. They've replaced their God with their genitals. They worship on the tops of mountains, make a picnic out of religion. Under the oaks and elms on the hills, they stretch out and take it easy. Before you know it, your daughters are whores, and the wives of your sons are sleeping around. But I'm not going after your whoring daughters or the adulterous wives of your sons. It's the men who pick up the whores that I'm after. The men who worship at holy whorehouses as stupid people ruined by whores. That's your 18 rating. The Israelites of Hosea's day consider themselves to be the true sons of Abraham. Like Abraham, their life was marked by altars. But Hosea doesn't praise Israel for this. Why not? 
Instead of praise, he criticized their altars. He shook his head and prayed instead of applauding. Why? Why shouldn't these people be praised? Aren't they and their priests following in the footsteps of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Those far forefathers who made altars wherever they went, aren't they being good and religious? Well, let's look a little closer. What does Hosea tell us? They sacrifice on mountaintops and burn offerings under the hills, under oak tree, sorry, under oak, poplar, and terebinth, where the shade is pleasant. Their religion was self-centered. What mattered was their own welfare, their own comfort zone. They worshipped God all right, just as long as it wasn't inconvenient, uncomfortable, and costly. They worshipped God all right, but only from a comfortable pew, and spoke about God only from comfortable pulpits. Perhaps we could put it this way. Next slide there. Um, I would like three dollars of God, please. Not enough to explode my stool or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of him to make me love a black man or pick beets with a migrant. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of a womb, not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I'd like to buy God Sorry, I'd like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Or, as David Livingstone uh, spoke of, um, or sorry, it's been recorded for us, um, that there was once a society who wrote to him and said, um, have you found a good road where, to where you are? If so, we want other men to join you. Livingstone replied, if you have good men who will come only if they know there is a good road... I don't want them. This morning are not you and I guilty of this kind of attitude. Oh, that God would forgive us for not wanting to move outside our comfort zone. Interest in missions, only casual. A spirit of sacrifice, not much. A burden for a lost world, not really. Making a picnic out of religion. I'll have a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Oh, and maybe I'll try that as well. A picnic is not a meal. Stealing from Christopher Hunter, um, it's like party food. You'll always come away hungry, satisfied for a moment, maybe an hour, but the hunger will return. In the concluding uh, verses 15 to 19, Hosea then goes on to expand why Israel is hopeless. Hopeless. We'll not read it again, uh, but let your eyes scan it as we move on. This section of the passage this morning ends in great frustration and hopelessness. In a sense, God must give up on Israel and try to protect the innocent. He warns the Israelites not to influence the people of Judah with this unfaithful behavior of prostitution. Doing so will bring even greater guilt on them. Does not this passage sound like society 
as well. Next slide. Um, sex sells. TV, magazines, cars, even breakfast cereal that we've seen. A mentality that says, I want to taste everything this world has to offer. A little bit like that picnic we were talking about earlier. A little bit of this, a little bit of that, and then when I'm fed up with that, I'll try something else. The sin of the Israelites in the days of Hosea was, sorry, so defined, is still very alive today. The sin of wanting both. On a basic level, people want to make a lot of money and have a lot of time off, to have a splendid career, a flourishing social and family life. So far, so good, more or less. It's your life, it's my life, isn't it? But the same attitude has spiritual consequences that we should be aware of. Before we know it, we build our own religion. And at this point, to claim the truth exclusively becomes something not done. We want to embrace it all. What's so wrong with that kind of life? Honestly, maybe you shouldn't ask me, because maybe I'm prone to the same modern spirit of wanting to combine everything in my life too. So maybe together this morning we should ask the prophet and ask God, stir us, change us, move us on. Because otherwise we will become like those people in Hosea's time whose sex worship was finally leaving them impotent. I wonder this morning, what distorted things are you and I worshipping? And to take us back to Dave's song, which he so wonderfully led us in, why don't we get back to that love which is like dew falling when the day has just begun, a mist that gathers in the morning, burnt off with the sun, because you are constant in your care, unfailing as the sunrise that illuminates the sky. Don't let this wonder pass me by. Don't ever let me take my eyes from looking to your constant love. Let me stand with my palms upraised as a sign of a heart engaged and a mind inquiring after you. Let me speak with sincerity. Let me act with integrity. Let the mercy I show be the worship I bring to you. And that is where we leave Hosea this morning, the people of Israel in a dark and troubled place. Come back next week if you want to hear what happens next. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do from the very bottom of our hearts thank you for that constant love that you give to us. We thank you that you don't walk out on us when we moment by moment walk out on you by choices we make, by things that we let enter our lives. Father, forgive us. Draw us back this morning to your love. Let us rest in your presence and let our hearts be set ablaze by you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.